This podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme and is brought to you with the support of BPI France. You're listening to the Fintech Podcast, the show that goes deep into the stories, the successes and failures that went into creating some of the world's most fantastic fintechs. Gotkin, and in this episode, how Banksware launched its white-labeled SME lending platform during the pandemic, only to have its plans almost derailed by the implosion of Wirecard. We wanted to start with Wirecard as bank, <laughs> but then actually the Wirecard, let's say, exploded, and uh, we had to, let's say, we had to find another bank actually to do the loans for us in the beginning. So, well, this was quite of a challenge, and it really led to the point where we really thought, shall we really do it now? Shall we really move on with our idea when this bank has now exploded? But we said, hey, come on. We actually, this is such a great product and we really want to do it. We will find another bank. So, and yes, we did. So that was good. Miriam Wolfart, uh, founder and co-CEO of Banksware. Thanks so much for joining me on the FNTech podcast. Hi, thank you. Thanks a lot for the invitation, Elliot. <laughs> uh, great to have you with us. So um, how's everything going with you? Oh, well, wonderful. <laughs> I would love to have Corona over, but uh, well, I cannot really complain. So. Things are going well. <laughs> We've had a number of SME fintech lenders on the show, but most like Market Finance and iWaka are, are lending via their own platforms. If I understand correctly, you're going down the embedded finance route. So tell us more about Banksware and how you uh, enable SMEs to get access to the funding that they need. Yes, we do. So what we basically do is that we offer a B2B lending as a service product. So any platform actually can offer this lending or this revenue-based finance product as if it would be their own product. So that's quite interesting. It's white label and they can also customize it to their needs and adapt it. So Because I think um, you see more and more platforms that want to offer financial products because they can enhance their product suite or they can just give a better, uh, they can give their customers a better feeling or a better product um yeah, a better product, um, let's say, experience. And it's more, let's say, the product can be customized to their relevance and their look and feel. And uh, I think that is what actually customers are looking for. They want something that is really uh, personalized to them. And that's therefore, I think, um, you will see a lot of platforms in the future that will offer embedded financial products because they just fit the needs of their customers. And... During the pandemic, we saw a lot of SMEs struggling. Some would have received help from their various governments. Uh, we also saw a lot of new small businesses emerging and being created, as crises often are um, good times to create new businesses. What was your experience at Banksware? Did you see massive growth? Did you see kind of, on the one hand, things not going so well at the beginning and then things returning? What was your experience? See, we founded our company within the pandemic, so it was always an interesting path, actually. Um, 
and it was also when we started, when we went live actually last year in December, we went live with an MAP um, in order to support these in, in Germany. They were called KFW loans. They were the ones that were from the, let's say, from the from the state actually loans for, for companies that were struggling. And so actually we did that together uh, with Penta, that is a, a challenging bank. So what we did together is that we offered these kind of help loans to struggling merchants. And this was a very successful project. And it helped us to really gain, let's say, first experience on our processes and everything. So that was quite helpful also for us. Uh, we actually, as banks, were, I think, wasn't, it wasn't, I don't know, I cannot really compare it to another time. Yeah. I mean, everything worked out well. We were all the time remote. We got funding remote. Uh, and funny, last week, the first time we met our investors in person, we had a dinner together. So that was also quite amazing. Yeah. So we never met in person, but we realized that it felt like we know each other for a long time, even that it was just remote. So for us, it was really good. I mean, I cannot really say it would have been better the other way around if we would not have corona i mean we were like in touch with the whole team all the time every day and uh, we tried to work together as, as if we were sitting together in an office yeah. so and we managed actually to to work really let's say focused to build the product to get first customers live to get customers signed so also with the customers we signed we never met them in person and it worked out so it it's a, it's a new way of working and that has been established. And I think for us as a young company, it was quite uh, good. I mean, as since we started right away from the scratch like this, yeah, so we didn't have to change a lot. So it's in my so old you launched, company. Hmm, so I was say, if you launched in December 2020, uh, what was the plan to kind of, what was it, did the pandemic influence your decision to found this company or was it just pure coincidence that... You have to launch was, right in the middle of it when the government was specifically trying was, to channel funding to SMEs. It was it was a bit of coincidence, let's say, like just be we were. I'd say we had this in mind uh, one year earlier that we wanted to do that, and um, but we were working on the idea and more conceptualizing it and making everything possible to build the company. And actually, we finally took the decision to really um, do it. That was that was actually in. Um, in May 2020, so it was already pandemic, yes. But we started with the idea before and we thought really this is even uh, what we will do now. It's probably in the, let's say, after pandemic time, there will be more need for this product than before. So we really thought that it might be a good way to start. Yeah, it was it was really the right decision. I mean, we actually the the, the only thing that happened to us <clears throat> really in the beginning in our conceptual phase, uh, we we wanted to start with Wirecard as bank, <laughs> but then actually the Wirecard say exploded, and uh, we had to let's say we had to find another bank actually to do the loans for us in the beginning. So well, this was quite of a challenge, and it really led to the point where we really thought, shall we really do it now? Shall we really move on with our idea? When this bank has now exploded but we said hey come on we actually this is such a great product and we really want to do it we will find another bank so and yes we did so that was good uh, which bank stepped into the breach in the end um well at the end actually we now we work with a german savings bank it's a german volksbank 
actually a very traditional bank and uh, also, that was good after the Wirecard experience, I think, to work with a really traditional bank that has a lot of trust, <laughs> especially when we started with the first customers. What we now are building is actually a, a, let's say, a new kind of vehicle where we can, let's say, integrate different kind of lenders. And because we work with all kinds of different platforms and some of the platforms that we work with, they want to finance themselves and they don't want to use a bank. And so we want to have more flexibility there in the future but we still work with this german savings bank which uh, we we like really much and as i mentioned before you know a crisis is sometimes the best time for people to start new businesses did you notice that happening um and did that mean that you know there was automatically more demand for small business loans and so more demand for your technology for people wanting to get funding to those new companies Yes, we saw, I mean, we saw a lot of demand and we still see a lot of demand. So I think we even see now more demand than last year because last year there was a lot of uncertainty. Maybe people did not really know if they should really do it, if they really need the loans. And also they were maybe afraid that they cannot pay it back. Um, we see now, we see more, uh, actually, yeah, it's getting more attractive now that you have a kind of less feeling like maybe pandemic is over in Germany, not at the moment, but still. There is still a feeling that we can in some, somehow there will be a post pandemic phase or, oh, we have to live with the pandemic. This is also something. So this is, but the people are not so afraid anymore. And I think now they are taking more loans. Germany is maybe not such a loan country than like if you compare it to the UK or so. People are more, hmm, we want to try it first without getting loans. We really want to do it with own means. So this is maybe it's a different this is a, little the German bit aversion to debt. Yes, yes. Sometimes a bit, a bit annoying. <laughs> uh, and I mean, you said you raised funds kind of in the midst of the pandemic and you only just recently met your investors in person. I mean, there have been quite a few big fundraising rounds mm -hmm. in the space of late, including market finance, I think raising almost $400 million. Uh, in mm -hmm. February, I think it was you raised a 4 million euro seed yeah. round. Um, are you yes. looking for more funds right now? Are you fundraising again? Yeah. At the moment, we're doing a seed extension, yeah, and uh, because we realized that we want some very big customers, but we still have to enhance the product further to really get it into a more mature, let's say, uh, phase. And therefore, we wanted to raise the seed extension now. So we're in the middle of this, and it's progressing well. The interest is really high, and we also have, uh, we already have some uh, term sheets signed. So we will soon probably finish this. Uh, we expect it till the end of the year. And is being able to meet these investors in person, is that like, oh, gosh, what a drag now. I've got to actually leave the office or leave the home and, <laughs> and meet people. Is it a similar experience? Is it easier? Is it harder? Uh, so the funny thing is when we were now doing the seat extension, <laughs> I still haven't met them in person. It was still remote. Uh, nevertheless, okay, we were at, uh, at Money 2020 in, uh, when was it, in September? And we, we met some people that was a great feeling. I really enjoyed it. But then we had this, this meetings with the investors and I was working out of Spain at that time and I wanted to travel to London, but I couldn't because I got a cold and I didn't want to travel with a cold. So I was a bit afraid. So it was still remote again, but I think it's okay. I mean, yeah, it, it is, it is a new way of working and we have to get used to it. And also you have to build up trust with people that you never met in person. And, uh, so, but my colleagues were there. So my colleagues met them in person, the new investors that are also coming now. Okay. 
And so what's, uh, what's the overall ambition or mission here for, uh, for Banksware? What is it that you're trying to achieve? The overall ambition is, let's say, if we look at Banksware maybe in three to five years, we would like to be the new standard of, let's say, of lending as a service and have a very modular product. And also, I mean, we want to offer, let's say, end-to-end products, but we also want to be able to offer parts of the, let's say, Banksware machine that we can, let's say, rent out as a software, as a service product. So you want to be, again, the goal is to be the leading, let's say, European provider for this. Okay. All right. Well, look, Miriam, we're going to come back to your story in just a moment because I just need to remind everyone listening that this podcast is part of the Paris FinTech Forum Communities Program for 2021. And in this special pandemic period, you can enjoy throughout the year top-level live sessions with key industry players, exclusive on-demand interviews such as this one, and use our innovative digital networking capabilities to meet your peers, develop your network, create new business opportunities, and continue to build together the future of the fin and tech industry. And you can find out more at www.parisfintech.com techforum.com. Now, Miriam, this isn't your first rodeo. I think you also founded RatePay back in Mm -hmm. 2009. Uh, Mm -hmm. Is the second time easier? Well, it is, you know, what is easier that you have an existing network already, that you know the right people to talk to, that you don't have to start really much from the scratch at many things. But also, it is not that it I mean, it's a different product. It's a it's a new time, so it's not really easier. Yeah, but there are some circumstances that maybe help a lot. Yeah, I would say it like this. But let's say building the product from the, it's like like getting the idea out of your head first on paper, then on something existing. It's not always that easy, and you always realize it's the same thing that you build a first version of the product, which 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 I said, which was live, let's say at the beginning of this year, and then realizing, oh, okay, no, you have to adjust it here, you have to adjust it there, you have to do this and this, and you have to continuously learn on the product, and this is this is not changing. So this is all always, let's say, this is probably also the magic of a startup that you can that you really really listen to what your potential customers want what they really need to have and what makes it successful and that you then use this information and put it right away in the product and uh, change it so this is this is the same thing then with rate pay <laughs> and was being an entrepreneur always the plan no <laughs> i came i came to this as uh, uh, it's, yeah it's quite funny actually i never you know i'm a bit older already so i grew up with with without the internet industry i worked in the travel industry in the end of the 90s but so at that time um at that time that uh, you know the, the travel industry was quite disrupted by online ticketing and i was let's say part of a group that uh, that did something there and through this i met actually an online payments company in from the netherlands which was called bibit global payment services and this small company actually you know i i fell in love with the company because this was a different kind of spirit and maybe it was this you know this the startup spirit that i didn't know before this. So I started working in the startup industry in 2000 in the payment space. And since that, I stayed there. And um, probably there, I realized that, you know, I needed some role models that I can look upon because I saw them building this company um, at that time. Then they they executed it and and uh, sold it to um, to Royal Bank of Scotland. It became WorldPay. So WorldPay today is a really really famous player, and the founders actually of the small Bibit uh, they are also the founders of Edian. And uh, 
my uh, my boss at that time, Peter Fonderdus, who is the CEO of Edion. But I really learned from him that you don't have to be, you know, you know, you don't need to do everything by yourself. And it's really important that you have the greatest people next to you because they fulfill the things that you are not able to do. And I think this was a learning for me, one of the key learnings, because if you would have asked me, let's say when, when I was very young and I, th I would have thought being a founder, you need to do everything by yourself. You need to be the, the super brain yeah, that is able to market, that is able to program and that is able to do all the financing and financial stuff and, and legal stuff. And, and I'm not like this. So I have some, let's say I have some good strengths, but I have a lot of weaknesses too. But it helped really to, let's say, find somebody that, is very successful where you can see this, that this is also working uh, when you work in a team, that you can create a very successful company. And uh, yes, and actually in 2009 or in 2008, nine in these years, you know, after financial crisis, I, when I worked at WorldPay, I, I, I mean, it, it was actually, I, changed, I, I quit my job at that time because the WorldPay was not doing well at that time. It was really getting difficult. I went to Ogon and that well, was also... Well, forgive, a, me, uh, forgive me, Miriam. Uh, WorldPay, of course, which was became part of Royal Bank of Scotland, uh, which after Northern Rock, I guess, was ground zero for the financial crisis in the UK. Yes. Um, was this one of the reasons that uh, things were not going so well because it had to be sold by RBS and there was a yeah. lot of uh, problems going on in the uh, in the the bigger banking group as a whole, not least the fact that it yeah, was part of the UK it, government. It was really difficult. It was before it actually more or less went bankrupt, but we had already, we saw, let's say, signs in Germany because uh, it was really difficult to onboard new customers to get them through risk. And you realize it, it, there was something going on that didn't feel right. And at that time I got a job offering um, from Ogon, which which was also a payment service provider. They offered me, well, to do the German and the Dach business. And so I, I took this opportunity because I, I didn't feel so well at, at WorldPay anymore. And there, actually, I worked with a lot of, let's say, um, companies together that used Ogon as a white label solution. This, uh, this really inspired me because this white label, I think it was, it was really interesting because you see that you actually build a product where you don't care so much about the brand. You care much more what is inside the product and you can, let's say, sell it to companies that they can, that they can use it as their own product. And this was really the idea I liked very much. Yeah. But, uh, at Ogon, um, I had this, there was this missing thing from my expectation in Germany because, um, in Germany, you know, they, the, the buy now, pay later, it's called Rechnungskauf. This is a fixed term that people know, let's say from the catalog business where they ordered stuff and paid it later. And, People liked it very much as a payment method in in, the, in Germany. In the let's say in the from since there was the internet, especially within let's say companies that were more um, that were more let's say a little bit um, traditional, like the Otto Group or so. They they had a lot of let's say people paying via open invoice and. You know, at Ogon, we, we didn't have this. And I always thought, okay, if we want to be successful in the German market, we really have to offer the payment methods the Germans want and not only the ones that international companies want. So it's not alone PayPal and credit card. And 
nobody wanted to do that. And then I really decided, you know what, at, these guys at Bibit at that time, they really created something. And I said to myself, I really know this market. I really know my customers and I really know that they really want this product. And I spoke with many of them. And so I decided uh, to build a company. Yes. <laughs> with the right people on my side. And this was a, a company that uh, it's called RatePay. And RatePay was also a white label provider for today. You call it buy now, pay later. At that time, there was not this buzzword. We just called it a, a white label provider for Rechnungskauf, so for payment upon invoice and, and installment payment. So, and it, it became quite successful. And, and yes, it was just the idea that I was really, really burning for. And I really believed that this will work out. And it was something similar now with, with banks where actually that I saw needs from customers because at RatePay, we served some marketplaces. And these marketplaces, they came up to us and said, hey, RatePay, could you not help us in providing liquidity, easy liquidity to the merchants? Because a lot of young merchants, they don't get liquidity from their banks. They struggle with this. And there are also no formats that are digital. And I, I really had this in my mind that we really, that, I don't know, there was some, then I, then I really thought, okay, how do merchants usually get their money? So they they get they get it from factoring or they get it from banks. But when they get it from factoring, it's all, always you know relying on a certain invoice, and it's not really like they get money that they are free to spend it with, like like if they had cash or something like this. And so I really thought that there was a let's say something a missing thing in the market that I would like to fulfill. And yes, and I knew the right people actually from RatePay and from the past that I could ask. And we got this idea and then we finally executed it. So by coming back to your question, I was not an entrepreneur <laughs> all my life. So I worked in a just normal um in a normal working environment in a corporate structure since for many years. But I think I'm a bit, if I, if I would describe myself, I think I'm a very curious person and uh, I also like to try new things. And uh, I'm always open to what my customers are saying. This is very important for me. So, And how hard was it to make that leap? As you say, you were working, let's say normal jobs in normal corporate structures doing you know, reasonably well, one imagines, but at the same time, these weren't your company. So how hard was it to quit your job and go and set up something new with all the risks that that entails? For me, actually, it was not that hard because this was really something, I, it, you know, it fascinated me. And I really thought at that time, I want to do this and try this. And I give myself one year. So I always said to myself, I will try it. And I give myself one year. I try to say, okay, how can, how can I survive one year? Also, let's say from the money that I have or from the support that I have in, in some way. So I decided I have one year of time that I could try it. Yes. And then it, it, you know, after the one year, it still felt that it could work at the end. And I, I, so I can always just give this advice to someone. If you have really an idea that you really burn for, I think it's worth to try it because otherwise you maybe ask yourself at a later stage in your life, Oh, I never tried it. And I think it's this, this, this feeling that, you know, I, I never wanted to have this feeling that I look back and then I said, Oh no, I didn't try. I had this great idea, but I didn't have the guts to try it. And I think this helped me a lot. And also this, okay, what, what do I really lose when I quit my job? 
because I thought, okay, I, I had, I had a good job and I had a good network. So I thought, okay, even if this is not successful, what I'm doing, I can go back in, in an equivalent job and I will find a job. And this is not something that is really, you know, it didn't really feel bad for me. And I really had this little, let's say money in the back that really was, was fine. So to, to have one year of, let's say not earning money. Um, so, okay. You have to, let's say in this year I, I lived very, uh, I didn't spend a lot of money, so I didn't, I didn't buy many new things and stuff like this. So I really also saved my money a lot, but I was working so much. I had no time to spend money. So that's also a good thing. And Yeah, at the end, I think it was a great decision that that I made it. And um, today, I, when I look back, I would never do it differently again. So I'm really happy friend, that I... Your friends and family, they, they were supportive? They thought you were crazy? Was What was the consensus? <laughs> yeah, actually, actually, most of them thought I was crazy. Because at that time, you know, especially when with rate pay, I mean, 2009 was the year of financial crisis. And then you tell some people, uh, you build a company in the financial sector, they all think you're stupid. But uh, <laughs> I really thought, okay, this is really, really, really what the market wants. And I was so convinced. And I think you need to be convinced from what you want to do. So you really have to believe in your product and don't think so much uh, why it should fail. Yeah, it, this, is, this kills too much. And Also, I didn't want to talk so much with people anymore that really wanted to convince me of all the reasons why it should fail. <laughs> And you mentioned uh, RatePay, of course, as being your first uh, fintech as a, being, a, I guess, a white-labeled uh, buy-now-pay-later provider. Of course, there are now the sector is exploding and there are concerns yes. this could be encouraging consumers to spend money they don't have. Mm -hmm. Now that you're no longer exclusively in this sector, what, uh, what's your take Um Do you think that it's gone too far, that regulators ought to come in and and uh, perhaps, uh, you know, dampen things down a little bit? First of all, by now, pay later, it's not all about, you know, consumers spending too much money on or money that they don't have. It's, I mean, I think you have to uh, take it differently. There is this pay, by now, pay later where you pay the full amount um, of the sum, maybe after 14 or 30 days and you don't pay any, any interest rate. So this is something that is even nice for liquidity. Yeah. And, uh, but okay. Then you have to, let's say um, the solutions where you do the installment and you pay sometimes a lot of interest rates. So I would also always tell the consumers that they have to really check how much they really pay at the end. This is something, and this is, I think there is, with some companies that they have, I think they are, they need to be better in transparency, what the consumer actually is paying. And therefore I would, I would rather think that you need some, yes, you need some regulations around this, that there is more transparency on the, on the actual cost of the buy now pay later for the consumer, because this is missing sometimes at the moment. And I think this is not good. So I think the, the, the product itself, it's great, but you have to make it more transparent. And um, and as you said, it's all the rage right now. Buy now, pay, pay later. But but so is diversity in fintech yes, and startups in absolutely. general. Absolutely. Yeah. Are, are, I guess your evident part, evidence of that perhaps are, are things changing? You see it a bit. I mean, they will. A lot of the investors they will be forced by ESG that they have to do it. Yeah, that they really have to take care of this. I didn't really. Now in my, let's say, in the last uh, discussions with VCs, I did not really experience that there was especially that they were looking for this. 
Um, what I see a lot um, here, well, well, I live in Germany. I can't speak, let's say, for the other countries so much. But here you see a lot of, let's say, things happening with where you see female VCs rising up and networks rising up for something that's called Encourage Ventures, which is really a new kind of, let's say, VC arm that that really wants to let's say invest into women this is still i mean it's still a problem and um that there are not so many women and uh, also on the vc side and i think the let's say when you are pitching for for money with a vc i think it's the female pitch is probably a bit different than the male pitch in well, because maybe I don't know if you if you look at the female pitch, sometimes I think it's maybe a bit more realistic. But <laughs> but you have to. But well, when you know you pitch in front of men that are only let's say men, a male VCs, me as a female, I think oh okay, I have to I have to take the pitch that is more male orientated <laughs> because it is. I mean, with a startup, it is. It is just that you, I mean, when you have a small startup, you just don't know how it will be in the next three years. Yeah. I mean, you have this big dream and you really want to go there and you have to be convinced that you want to go there, but you have no evidence that it works. And I think this is something um, in the pitch, you really have to do it more like, yes, this will work. And this, this, and this. But I think sometimes it would also help if we are more realistic. Yeah. Okay, and I mean, just this is the final question that I ask everyone who joins me on the F and Tech uh, podcast, and the question is this: uh, What is the weirdest or craziest thing you've ever built or done in your life? This is a difficult question for me because I really have to think of what was really, really crazy. Maybe when I was young, uh, let's say. Uh, I lived in Spain for a while and there I had some, let's say, uh, I worked, I worked as a, I had some actress roles. <laughs> I was working as an, as an actress and played a tennis player <laughs> in the early nineties <laughs> when I was what, very young. What, what film <laughs> or program was that? Oh, this, this was a, a series called, um, uh, this was a series called El Cid and it, it, it was, uh, and I just, you know, I didn't talk, but I was in this film and I was playing this tennis player. So <laughs> I see, I can't really play tennis and I had to play this. And maybe when I think about it, it feels a bit funny. Yes. <laughs> well, everyone will now be uh, no doubt going out to try to find that. Uh, no, that no. Clip it's, of you playing tennis. Was, this was uh, pre, you know, this was the pre his, the pre internet uh, time, and uh, so I'd be surprised reason, what's on YouTube these days. But uh, yeah, maybe you find it if you watch all of them. So I didn't, I didn't do it many times, but I had some, um, I had some uh, actress. Let's say I, I earned some money with doing this, so I did that maybe let's say five, six times. Yeah. <laughs> so once it wasn't, I, I played this tennis, this tennis player. And also one time I played, um, I played the, uh, a uh, service, uh, uh, you know, in a, in a restaurant, a, a waiter, a waitress. Yes. <laughs> so I was also, I was a waitress and I had also, and when I was young, I had a lot of, let's say, funny jobs. I worked in a car wash, uh, and uh, all kinds of things that I did. <laughs> okay. Well, sounds like, uh, I'm sure all the skills you picked up along the way of, uh, help you somehow uh, in your current uh, position. So um, 
But, uh, well, just really want to thank you for, for joining me, Miriam uh, Wolfhart, uh, founder and co-CEO of Banksware. Thank you so much for joining me on the FN Tech podcast. Thanks for hosting me. It was a pleasure. <laughs> Don't look down. That's the advice experienced heads tend to give to climbers who aren't used to heights. It might equally apply to people considering founding their own fintech. Look down or entertain excessive thoughts of failure, and there's every chance you'll never make the leap. Certainly, launching a fintech during a pandemic, and even after your banking partner has gone bust, takes courage. But it also requires belief, and the knowledge that if you do fall or fail, it's not the end of the world. So thank you, Miriam Wolfart, and thank you for listening to the Fintech podcast with me, Elliot Gottkin, now part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get updates and listen to all previous episodes via the website, www.parisfintechforum.com. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can find us on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Paris Fin Forum or at Elliot Gottkin. That's it from me. Thanks again to BPI France for sponsoring this podcast. We'll be back again next week for more of the best F in tech. Hope you'll join us again then. Bye-bye.